You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about systemic lupus erythematosus, which I'll just be calling lupus for the sake of this podcast. Joining me today, I have two guests, Dr. Sarah Bayevsky, who's a pediatric and adult rheumatology fellow at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and Dr. Melissa Argraves, who's a pediatric rheumatologist at Nationwide Children's. Thank you both so much for joining me today. And thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on the podcast. We're excited to share some teaching pearls about pediatric lupus. Lupus is one of the most common diseases in pediatric rheumatology, and primary care doctors can have a major impact on prompt diagnosis and ultimately the patient's disease outcome. Well, as you mentioned, it is one of the most common diseases in pediatric rheumatology, but I still feel like I don't see it that often. So this is a great opportunity to refresh my knowledge. But also, it is one of those conditions that's in my differential a lot because lupus has been called the disease of a thousand faces. The symptoms can be broad and also nonspecific. So there's a lot of overlap with a number of other diagnoses. So I'm wondering, what are some of the demographic features that should raise my suspicion for lupus? And what's the current understanding of the pathophysiology? Is this something that's genetic, hormonal, immunologic, environmental, or is it just a little bit of everything? I totally agree that lupus is a complicated disease, and it's really probably a little bit of everything, including both genetic and hormonal influences. And in terms of the mechanism of disease, you have both the innate and humoral parts of the immune system affected. So it really spans the whole entire immune system. And patients tend to make autoantibodies, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. And immune complex deposition really is what leads to a lot of the various manifestations, such as lupus nephritis. And the demographics are actually really important. So it's really a disease of teenagers. It's very rare in non-adolescent children, and females are much more affected than males. It's also really important to mention that it is both more common and more severe in people of color. And it really tends to account for about 15 to 20% of all lupus cases. So pediatric lupus definitely is important and a major contributor to lupus overall and tends to be more severe if it's diagnosed in childhood. Thanks for helping me understand who may present to my clinic with lupus. Now, the lupus classification criteria that I would use for diagnosis, I know can be complex. And so I'm hoping, Dr. Bayevsky, maybe you can walk us through that classification system. Yeah, so there are several versions of the classification criteria. And they were really designed to identify a homogeneous population for research studies. So they're not diagnostic criteria, and it's an important distinction because it means that patients can be diagnosed with lupus without meeting these criteria. And likewise, patients can actually meet these criteria but not be considered to have lupus. But the classification criteria are helpful to conceptualize the disease and to just remind us what to look for when we're evaluating patients with concern for lupus. 
So today, I think what we should focus on are the 1997 American College of Rheumatology, or ACR, criteria, which include 11 different characteristics. And to meet these criteria, you need to have four out of the 11 criteria. But there are other criteria. There are the 2012 SLICK criteria, S-L-I-C-C, and there are newer 2019 ACR and ULAR criteria that was an effort that was combined from the American organization as well as the European society. So these classification criteria fall into different categories such as organ system involvement, mucocutaneous findings, and lab abnormalities. Let's talk first about organ system involvement. So what organs are involved in lupus? Yeah, so the most common organ systems are going to be your musculoskeletal organ system, mainly arthritis, the renal system, and neurologic system. So let's start with arthritis. The arthritis really has to be true arthritis, and it should affect more than two joints. So it's not just joint pain. It tends to be symmetric and polyarticular and affects the small joints more than the large joints, though all can be affected. Moving on to the kidneys, renal disease is often silent and can be very severe and lead to really bad outcomes, so it's really important to think about. You have to go looking, though. You need to screen with both urinalyses and creatinine, as well as blood pressures. And you're looking for proteinuria, sometimes hematuria, as well as cellular casts. A pro tip is to look at first morning void urinalyses. And the reason that first morning void is helpful is because you will avoid any um, benign proteinuria that spills in your adolescence. And finally, let's talk about the neurologic system. So neurolupus can have a really wide presentation, uh, but the things that we mainly think about towards the criteria are going to be seizures, psychosis, and delirium. But persistent headache without a response to medication, aside from steroids, can be common. And anxiety and depression are widely seen in pediatric lupus and very important to think about. I'd like to add one other important organ system to think about, and that's the cardiovascular organ system. Patients can get sericitis, and that can present as shortness of breath, dyspnea, chest pain, and really you're looking for pleural effusions on imaging, as well as pericardial effusions and pericarditis on both echo and EKG. Yes, thank you for highlighting the mental health impact with lupus. It's super important. We'll talk about that a little bit later too. The next big category are the mucocutaneous findings. And this is what I typically think about when people say lupus. I think of the malar rash or a discoid rash. So when I see these, should I always be thinking about lupus? Let's talk a little bit more about the malar rash and discoid rash. And then I'd also like to highlight a couple of other mucocutaneous findings that you can see in patients with pediatric lupus. So the malar rash is really a photosensitive rash that overlies the cheeks and the bridge of the nose. And classically, it spares the nasolabial folds. It's something that is seen in some patients with lupus, but not all of them. And there is a differential. For example, patients with juvenile dermatomyositis may have a malar rash as well, but typically it does not spare the nasolabial folds in those patients. Other things to think about would be rosacea, facial flushing, and then even factitious disorder. 
Discoid rash is something that is often seen on the ears and the scalp. And the important thing to think about there is scarring alopecia. So while the malar rash doesn't scar, discoid rash can. Prompt treatment can be really helpful. Ringworm can also present as a rash on the scalp. So sometimes we have to distinguish between a fungal infection and a discoid rash. Patients, importantly, can have mucocutaneous findings without systemic lupus. And so in those cases, sometimes topical therapies are all that's needed. But patients with cutaneous lupus are at risk of developing systemic lupus. So I think if you're seeing a patient in primary care clinic and you suspect that they have cutaneous findings of lupus, that would be a patient who you'd want to refer to dermatology and or rheumatology for further evaluation. And then I would think about some other mucocutaneous findings too. So oral ulcers, for example, are seen in lupus. And unlike the oral ulcers that you see sort of as canker sores or as part of viral infections, Oral ulcers and lupus tend to be on the hard palate and are often painless, so it's more of a physical finding than a chief complaint. Nasal ulcers may present in patients with lupus too, and those are often painful. And then Raynaud's phenomenon is something that is seen with a lot of lupus patients and can give a clue to the diagnosis early on, although a lot of patients who have Raynaud's do not have any manifestations of an autoimmune disease and really just have what we call primary Raynaud's phenomenon that doesn't require further evaluation. So many good pearls. I didn't really know the part about the oral ulcers typically being painless and on the hard palate. So that's a great distinction since we do see a lot of oral ulcers in pediatrics. And I also really liked thinking about cutaneous lupus, which is not something that I actually had thought about in a while. So thanks for bringing up that that exists and that those patients are at risk for developing systemic lupus. Now, the last category that we mentioned in part of the classification criteria are laboratory findings. So what are some of the common labs that you may see in a patient with lupus? So I'm going to start with the hematologic manifestations, which are primarily cytopenias. So pretty much every cell line can be affected. You can get a hemolytic anemia, and this tends to be Coombs positive. Some patients will have anemia, but it won't necessarily be hemolytic, and it'll just more be a anemia of chronic disease. They can also have thrombocytopenia, and platelet counts can be very low, and it can really look like a presentation of ITP. And then finally, their white counts can be affected, and they can have leukopenia, a pearl is that it specifically affects the lymphocyte count over the neutrophils. And so paying attention to the ALC, which I think a lot of times we forget to do, is actually really important in this case. And then moving on to the infamous ANA, we'll talk about it a little bit more in detail, but just know that most lupus patients will have a positive ANA. And then they will also have various other autoantibodies that are positive, and these are called extractable nuclear antigens, with double-stranded DNA and Smith being the most specific for lupus. Though you can have other autoantibodies such as SSA, SSB, RNP, and still have lupus. And then complements are always important to think about. C3 and C4 tend to be low. And finally, a really great pearl is that the you have systemic inflammation. You tend to see an elevation of your sedimentation rate, and 
a very mild to sometimes no elevation of your CRP. So there's this striking discordance. And so it's important to check both a sedimentation rate and a CRP because with a CRP alone, you may uh, miss the systemic inflammation. These aren't part of the criteria, but I just think very important to talk about. So let's go back to that infamous ANA that you mentioned and spend a little more time discussing the ANA test because there are a lot of misconceptions here. So the anti-nuclear antibody, or ANA, is an antibody to proteins in the nucleus. A positive ANA is sensitive but not specific for lupus. So can you help us understand the limitations of doing an ANA test for lupus? Absolutely. And I think the first thing to know is that an ANA is positive in about 10 to 20% of healthy kids. It's also positive in many other autoimmune diseases. For example, autoimmune hepatitis patients or patients with juvenile dermatomyositis can also have a positive ANA. Infections, malignancy, and other chronic diseases can also turn an ANA positive. So I would think of an ANA as something that's not entirely specific for lupus. It's helpful, I think, when thinking about when to send an ANA to think about your pretest probability. If your pretest probability for lupus is low, then a positive ANA is much more likely to be a, what we call a benign positive ANA. Titer can also be really helpful. So benign positive ANAs almost always have a low titer, 1 to 80, 1 to 160. Once you start getting into 1 to 320 or higher, it's less likely to be a benign positive ANA and more likely to be indicative of some kind of disease. That said, almost all lupus patients do have a positive ANA. So if an ANA is negative, then it virtually rules out lupus. That's a great tip. And I didn't realize that about 10 to 20% of healthy children could have a positive ANA. So I really like your point about thinking about what your pretest suspicion is and whether or not you have a strong clinical suspicion for lupus before you send that test. So in thinking about ordering labs in clinic, let's say I have an adolescent female who comes in with joint pains, oral ulcers, and maybe even a malar rash. What's my first step in the workup for lupus? In this case, it really depends on the details. If these features are similar to the classic clinical features we just described, then I would recommend doing more of a workup because I have a very high clinical suspicion. So for example, if there's a clear malar rash on your exam that has nasolabial sparing, the joint pains are accompanied by either arthritis that you can clearly see on exam or have a very inflammatory quality with morning stiffness that gets better with activity, and the oral ulcer is on that hard palate and painless, I would 100% advocate for sending a first pass workup because my suspicion is that this patient probably has lupus. So I'd start with a CBC with differential. There you're looking for cytopenias. A CMP, and this is going to look mainly at the creatinine, but also liver enzymes, which can be elevated in muscle disease if the liver itself is affected and also with a hemolytic anemia. A urinalysis, again, looking for that silent renal disease. Inflammatory markers, making sure to include the sedimentation rate. And then finally, I would send an ANA in this case because my suspicion is very strong. And depending on where you practice and what the options for sending an ANA, sometimes you can send an ANA just with titer, or sometimes you can send an ANA that will then reflex to some of those more specific autoantibodies. 
Conversely, if the patient has very nonspecific joint pain, a pretty normal exam, and maybe a history of some flushing, but you're not convinced that it's a malar rash, and they just have a small canker sore on their inner lip, my suspicion's a lot lower. I think starting with symptomatic management and follow-up would be very reasonable. Though if you have any inclination and you're nervous, you can always just start with the basics without sending that ANA and avoid getting a benign positive result. Great. That's a really helpful list of labs that we can start with in primary care. And then distinguishing when to use our ANA or not is great tips. So thank you for that. Now, obviously, we aren't treating patients for lupus in primary care, and any patient with lupus should be under the care of a rheumatologist. However, can you help me just be aware and understand what you might be using to treat your patients with lupus so that I know what types of medications they might be on? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's really a really important partnership between the primary care doctor and the rheumatologist in treating patients with lupus. So definitely appreciate all the help that we get from our primary care docs. The main medication that's used in almost all patients with lupus is hydroxychloroquine. And it's used for a variety of reasons. It helps with joint pain, helps with skin disease related to lupus, and it actually reduces the cardiovascular risk that's associated with lupus, especially pediatric lupus. Prednisone is used often in patients with lupus, and it can be used at diagnosis and for flares, but some patients actually require chronic use of prednisone, and they may be on low-dose prednisone for quite a while and may be, in that case, susceptible to some of the side effects that can be seen with patients on chronic steroids. Other medications really depend on the features of an individual's lupus. So, for example, if they have predominantly arthritis or they have serositis, which would involve pericardial effusions, for example, or pleural effusions, or if they had neurologic disease. So some of these medications are mycophenolate, methotrexate, azathioprine. You can see B-cell agents like rituximab and belimumab. And for very severe cases, we use cyclophosphamide as well. And these are all immunosuppressants, and so patients are more susceptible to infection as a result. There are also some newer agents, and this is really an area of active research, so stay tuned in the next few years for some more medications. So if we have a patient who is already diagnosed with lupus and is followed by rheumatology, what should we know in primary care about preventative care in these patients? So I'm thinking, like, do they need any special considerations for vaccinations, or are there any annual screenings that we should be doing in primary care to help make sure that we keep them as healthy as possible? Yeah, excellent question. Like everyone was saying before, this partnership is so important. I'll start with sunscreen, which might not be the first thing that comes to mind, but sunscreen is so, so, so important. I don't know if we touched upon it, but in when we talked about the factors that can contribute to lupus, but sun and UV damage is a prime example of an environmental trigger. And so sunscreen is vital. All the time, all skin tones, it doesn't matter. If patients have lupus, they should be applying daily sunscreen. And if they're out in the sun for long periods of time, they should be reapplying. Next, eye exams are really important. So as Dr. Bayeski said, almost everyone is on hydroxychloroquine. And hydroxychloroquine is a relatively benign medication, but over time, one of the risks is retinal toxicity. And so they should be having yearly eye exams. 
And so just making sure they're getting to the ophthalmologist is really important. And then vaccines. Vaccines are a little more nuanced. I think the first thing I would say is that most of our patients are on immunosuppressants. So if they're on any drug more than just hydroxychloroquine, they should not be receiving live vaccinations. And then pneumococcal vaccines are so, so important. Because their complement system is affected, they are very susceptible to these infections. And so they need both conjugate and polysaccharide vaccination. Some rheumatology clinics will give this, but it's certainly worth checking to make sure they're up to date. And then how could we have a podcast in 2022 without talking about COVID? (laughs) So all these patients, if they're considered immunosuppressed, which they are regardless of medication, they need both a primary series that includes that third dose as well as COVID boosters. And I'm not going to go into when they should be getting their COVID boosters because that seems to be ever changing. Mm -hmm. And then the other important things that we definitely need to mention are one, pay attention for steroid toxicity. And so some of our patients, if they've been on chronic steroids, may be at risk for adrenal insufficiency. So reminding them never to like abruptly stop taking their medications, very important. And then the question that often comes up from primary care offices is what to do if a patient comes in with some sort of illness and they need to take antibiotics, they have a fever, And my rule of thumb is always have them reach out to us as a rheumatologist, but they may already know whether or not they're supposed to hold their medications. Often with fevers, we will hold medicine. Steroids are often that one exception because, as I just mentioned, it can be dangerous to abruptly stop. And then mental health, mental health, mental health. They cannot get enough mental health screening and Primary care physicians are often so much more knowledgeable about those local resources. So I would say the top two takeaways for me are sunscreen and mental health screening. Those are invaluable. And for patients on long-term steroids, I often like to check their vitamin D level. Do you agree with that as well? Yeah, definitely. Lupus patients often have low vitamin D levels. You will often see that they're on vitamin D supplementation. And so bone health is super important. And the other thing that's really important is lipid screening. They do have an increased cardiovascular risk compared to a healthy individual. And so generally, we do screen their lipids anywhere between yearly and twice yearly. And if they do have elevated cholesterol, in if it's high enough, we will refer them for appropriate treatment. Great. Well, we've covered a lot today, and this is a complex topic, as we mentioned at the beginning. So can you give us a few key takeaway learning pearls to remember about lupus? Yeah. So I think coming back to what you mentioned at the beginning about lupus being a disease that can look like so many things, I think some of the features that are most common in lupus are constitutional symptoms. These patients are generally a little unwell. The polyarticular arthritis that we talked about, especially on the small joints, the oral ulcers that are often painless and on the roof of the mouth, malar and discoid rashes we see in the cutaneous disease, Raynaud's, cytopenias, and nephritis. And importantly, fatigue and joint pain, which is a very common presentation, are not usually concerning for lupus. What we're looking for really is multi-system disease. And I think if your initial workup creates a high suspicion for lupus, then you'll want to include a CBC with diff, a CMP, inflammatory markers, including that ESR, a urinalysis, and a urine protein to creatinine ratio, 
and then an ANA. And those labs at the initial suspicion can really clue you in as to whether the patient likely or does not likely have lupus. And then the other things that I would add are, one, ANA is positive in 10 to 20% of healthy children. So while it is a good screening test, it captures way more people than will ever have lupus. 95% or even higher of those lupus patients have that positive ANA, so definitely send with a high clinical suspicion, but not a great test to send when you're just not quite sure. Adherence to medication and attention to mental health are both very important to the successful treatment of lupus. And ultimately, the goal is disease remission while minimizing toxicity of medications. Well, thank you both so much. I've learned a lot about lupus during this. I appreciate your passion for this topic and making something that is complex feel a little bit simpler and more manageable in the primary care setting. And we are happy to have you at CHOP, HUP, and Nationwide. So thank you for sharing with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.